Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino, and today my conversation is with Zach Wood. He is the author of a new memoir called Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America. I first got to know Zach a few years ago when he was a student at Williams College in Massachusetts and at the time was the president of the student group Uncomfortable Learning. Now, Uncomfortable Learning was a controversial group at Williams because its mission was to bring speakers with heterodox and sometimes even offensive ideas to campus for debate and dialogue. Now, Zach had many challenges while he was president of the group, including a unilateral disinvitation from the college president that captured headlines across the country. And naturally, we at FIRE got to know Zach. And in 2016, he won our Prometheus Award for Student Activism in defense of free speech on campus. Now, Zach has been in the spotlight ever since. He's become a go-to source for journalists and lawmakers who are looking for a student perspective, or more recently, a student-adjacent perspective on some of these issues. He's testified to Congress on multiple occasions, I believe twice, and even given a TED Talk, a real TED Talk, not a TEDx Talk. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, and this is all, of course, by the age of 22. Having graduated from Williams earlier this year, I believe in June, he's now working as an assistant editor for The Guardian and touring the country to speak about his book. And did I mention (laughs) that Zach actually wants to become president one day, too? He's an ambitious man, and all of this on its own, of course, would be impressive, But when you learn more about Zach's history and his upbringing and the incredible challenges that he faced on his path to becoming the man that he is today, which he recounts in this conversation and, of course, in his memoir, when you consider all that, you start to think maybe, just maybe, becoming president isn't beyond Zach's skill and ambition. So let's dive in. Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me what it's like writing a book. How old are you? I'm 22, turning 23 in a few days. Yeah, so when did you start writing it? In a month, in a month. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like writing a book at that age, a memoir? So it was a lot of work, for one. It requires a lot of discipline, a lot of focus, a lot of time, a lot of energy. And doing it while I was studying away at Columbia University in New York City meant that I just had to to really be on top of it and, and be committed fully to the whole process. And how'd you do it? Did you just try and write a page a day or you, something? You try to set aside time every day to look at what you've written, uh-huh. to revise. I was sharing it with professors, with mentors. I had all kinds of people who were helping me think through, how do I make sense of writing a memoir at 22 and, and what psychological structure that makes sense? Because that's something I really didn't know. Yeah. And you became kind of a public persona through your involvement with this group, Uncomfortable Learning in Williams right. College. And that's yes. how you got the opportunity to write a memoir. Right. So tell me a little bit about uncomfortable learning. So when I got to Williams, there were certain trends I noticed on campus. I'd always been the kind of student who was interested in political, social, economic issues. Mm -hmm. And so I was eager to debate these things and discuss these things with my peers and professors. And so it became very clear that that was difficult to do. And so I started looking for avenues, opportunities, groups that I could join and be a part of and contribute to that would help. They wanted to debate. They wanted to debate, basically. And Uncomfortable Learning, just the name alone, caught my attention. And I said, hmm, I wonder what this is about. And as it turns out, it it fits the bill for exactly what I'm looking for. The thing is, it was a a little-known organization at the time. um, And the leaders of the organization were trying to kind of have greater influence in the Williams community. So I joined this organization, eager to be a part of it. And the idea behind Uncomfortable Learning is that uh, you invite speakers with views that you know do not align with the majority of students on campus, yeah. even views that are unpleasant, views that are controversial, views that many would find offensive. 
and you bring them to campus, the the speaker will talk for you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and then there should be a, an intense but respectful Q&A. Yeah, the first speaker that you attended through the Uncomfortable Learning Series was Randall Kennedy, yes, right? And he's actually I been admire, on this podcast really? okay, before. Yeah, actually, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Because he wrote an article about the history of the student speech movement in the 1950s and 60s and how it kind of percolated. Yep, American as, Prospect, right? Yeah, yeah as yeah. a result of the Civil Rights Movement. Right, and right, so that was right. fascinating to me. And then I and then I learned his history. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that he can be a controversial figure, but Absolutely. I don't think he's the same sort of controversial figure that you started inviting to speak on no, campus no. Randall when Kennedy, you became president. Yeah, I take it. I mean, Randall Kennedy is a very thoughtful, rigorous thinker. Harvard professor. Harvard professor. He just happens to take nuanced and sometimes controversial views, whether it's on affirmative action at one point in his mm-hmm. career, on the use of the N-word at mm-hmm. one point in his career, things of that sort. But the speakers I was inviting were speakers that I just fundamentally deeply disagreed with on on big issues. But such as? Such as, so one speaker I invited, Charles Murray, is known for writing a book called The Bell Curve. Yeah, I'm sure most of my listeners will be familiar right, with him. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that there's a difference, right, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to intelligence that can be observed between races. That's the conclusion many have drawn from yeah, it. Yeah, that's the last chapter in his book, exactly, I believe. Exactly. But uh, the, the book, I haven't read the book, yeah. is about how intelligence Class is a big deal. There's a, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, how there. intelligence is going to play a greater role in, in society, society or right, something. And it's going to, and it's going to start separating groups and individuals more because it's not IQ based in society. It's not like exactly. who can pick up the biggest log and haul it right. down the and river. Of course, people focus on one slice of the, I mean, that's just, yeah, how, the how race and IQ, work. which is the most controversial exactly. thing and has been controversial for a century. <laughs> exactly. Know? Right. Yeah. So I invite him to campus and I disagree with the, the kind of the premise there. And mm-hmm. cause I mean, really the reason why I disagree even before it gets to the issue of race is just because I think from the reading that I've done and from what I've learned, um, and there are certainly many experts who know more than I do about this, but intelligence is complicated. You know, Howard Gardner is a psychologist at Harvard who came up with the theory of multiple intelligences. And so I think someone- can How much a, of it is heritable? How much of it is heritable? How much of it is creativity, analytical and critical thinking skills? You know what I mean? Yeah. Different kinds of intelligence. So for me, to say that one test means anything in terms- you know what I mean? That that premise alone. So you wanted probably, to bring him to campus. Bring him to campus to talk about it, right? Yeah. To engage and debate. And that was extremely difficult to do. So that's an example of a speaker that I brought. And that was the idea of uncomfortable learning. You bring these speakers, more or less big names, but big names isn't necessarily the criteria. The criteria is that they are serious about uh, serious arguments of some intellectual or political import mm-hmm. in our time. And that through engaging with them, students will gain something. Yeah. So what happened when you brought Charles Murray to campus? Everybody what was the response? It. Everybody loved it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no. So there was a uh, significant pushback uh, from the administration. I met with my and college. were you expecting speaker. that? Yeah. At that point, yes. Okay. At that point in time. Because he wasn't yes. the first speaker. He was not the first speaker. He was not the second speaker. He was not the third speaker. So at that point, I'd been around this track a few times uh-huh. and, and I expected it. But- my college president actually told me face to face beforehand, kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of grousing, saying, uh, "So you're going to bring Charles Murray?" He knew because other students it. around the country have been bringing Charles yeah, Murray because yeah. he wrote a book. Uh, what was it? Coming apart. That yep, kind of exactly spoke to the divide that many people perceive in America, yep. and that can many people think can explain explain the rise of Trump. Exactly. So he was doing the speaking circuit. He was coming to campus, exactly. but people weren't. That wasn't so controversial, that book, but his bell curve book was. So right. all of those appearances were framed by the bell curve. Right, exactly. Framed by the bell curve. Mm-hmm. And that's the, even though coming apart, uh, there are actually, there's some interesting things in there that I think I haven't need to read be it, taken but seriously. I, but I've heard other people say that there's some, some really interesting insights. There are. There mm-hmm. are, especially with, in terms of social and public policy. Mm-hmm. But what people still focus on. And people still talk about is this two pages of the bell curve? Yeah, from like, like 1991 or whenever exactly it was published. Right, yeah. 1994, and uh, people don't even talk about the co-author at all. They just talk about him. Well, he died before it was published. He, right? he died right before it was published. Richard mm-hmm. Herrnstein, who was yeah. a political scientist, uh, so he doesn't really get much credit for the controversy. It's all Murray. Yeah, but so I invited Murray to campus. You had administrative backlash, and that took the form of uh, you know several deans, several administrators, kind of stepping in. And, you know, face to face with me going through all of the reasons why they thought this was a terrible idea. 
Well, tell me a little bit about Williams College. What is the zeitgeist there? Why would they be concerned about him coming to campus? So Williams College is a pretty liberal campus. In Western Massachusetts. Western Massachusetts. Rural. Rural. In, rural, in the middle of nowhere. You write in your book that you have dislocated. to you have to drive pretty far to go to a movie. Oh, yeah. You've got I mean, 45 <laughs> minutes at least. Uh-huh. You've got to go all the way to Albany. Okay. And uh, there are about six places to eat within two blocks of campus. It's one Thai place. you got a Subway. You have McDonald's. It, you know, that's mm-hmm. a sandwich shop. But that's Fine about dining. It. Yep. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, and so this is where you're located. And so because you're in some sense geographically dislocated, because you're at a college that is – I mean, very small, even among liberal arts colleges. How many students? 2,300 in total. Okay. So we're talking roughly, each each uh, year is a mm-hmm. little different, but my, my year is about 560. Okay, so that's about as big as my high school. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You see what I mean? So yeah, everything... and I knew most of the people in my high school, right. so everyone knows each other. Everyone knows each other. You see the same people mm-hmm. in the same spaces, you know, chilling, relaxing, reading, whatever, eating in the dining hall, right? Yeah. And so everyone knows everyone. And what that means is that unlike at, say, Syracuse or UCLA, anything controversial that happens at Williams, everyone knows about it. Everyone knows who's responsible for it. Everyone knows who started it. Everyone, you see what I mean? Yeah. So there's always there's always an easy whipping boy, basically. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was select <laughs> because I was the president of Uncomfortable Learning at the time. It was all kind of pinned on Zach as this controversial figure who is, in some sense, doing harm on campus. Now there were some people who supported what I was doing. There were professors. Would they speak up though in defense of you? Very, very few. Yeah. What I find often is that you'll get a lot of emails or or comments behind closed doors that are in support of what you're doing, but they're not willing to put their skin in the game. Exactly. And the thing is I had, I had great relationships with, with uh, so many students there. I mean, lots Mm -hmm. of peers who I consider to this day, close friends of mine, good friends of mine. And, um, but even many of them, some were just not really that engaged or interested in political stuff. Right. But some who were supportive would say, man, I really like what you're doing, but Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know, yeah. keep it on the down low. So when Murray happens, when it takes place, there is um, a big, uh, significant resistance and pushback. Uh, and backlash basically takes the form of tweets, posts on Facebook. Mm-hmm. There was this thing, this app called Yik Yak. I don't know if it's Oh, I remember around. Yik Yak. No, it's not around anymore, right. but it was. It's the, anonymous Twitter. Yeah, and more or less. More or less. Geographically. Based, based exactly. Yeah, so if you are at. Williams, where there are not many students, it's pretty rural. Exactly, it's anonymous. It's the community talking. And you, can you can't say see whatever you want. Yeah, right. So I could say whatever I want to say about you, and you have no idea who said it. Mm-hmm. All you do is see it on this on the screen. So I was getting uh, texts from friends every day. Zach, did you see the latest? You yeah. know, comment. Uh, some people saying things like, you know, uncomfortable learning was responsible for assassinating Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Just like crazy, you know, yeah. crazy things, yeah. right? And then to more direct personal criticisms directed at me. Mm-hmm. I've been called a white supremacist, which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, you know, right? <laughs> for our listeners who can't see Zach, he's black. <laughs> exactly right. So, you know, a range of uh, of of. Um, uh-huh. There, there were some threats that I think you mentioned in your book. There were some, yeah, there were some clear implicit threats that were made. There was a, a note slipped under my door. There was one note I found in my mailbox at one point. Mm-hmm. I got calls from block numbers a few times. Mm-hmm. So there were a range of things. No one ever said, I'm going to kill you. That was mm-hmm. never said. Mm-hmm. But the the uh, note that I received under my door had a picture that was very clear. It was referring to like a lynching. Mm-hmm. Right, you had like yeah. leaves, a tree, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of a noose hanging from it. It was very clear what the person intended, and it was actually like very detailed. Like someone had put time into this, mm. and so I, you know, I never found out who did it. I really didn't make much of a make a big campus police didn't get involved. No, they didn't. You know, the way I thought about it was this is a little concerning, and I'll be more aware uh-huh. of my surroundings. Yeah, but I did not get the sense that I was in grave danger. Yeah. If I was, I certainly would have taken up. Charles steps. Murray can't, ended up coming, right? He ended up coming. But previously, you had yeah. invited Suzanne Vanker, who's uh, critical of feminism. Yes. You invited uh, John Derbyshire, who was kicked off a national review for writing some yeah. racist yeah. commentary. Yeah. And one or both of them were disinvited by President Falk. What's his first so name? So Adam Falk. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that was my former college president. Uh-huh. He and I had some deep disagreements. He's not there anymore. He is not there anymore. Yeah. Um, 
And I personally think Williams is the better for it. Mm. Um, he disinvited Derbyshire. That was a kind of unitary, direct kind of executive decision. Mm-hmm. No consultation, nothing. He tried to call you and let he you know he's going to do it. And then he like sent a message. A few hours before. And yeah. then, you know, sent a message out to the whole, you know, the whole student body saying the group that has invited as if people didn't know which group. <laughs> the group that has invited John Derbyshire is, uh, you know, we have rescinded the invitation and it will not be taking mm-hmm. place. Uh, you know, while we support uh, debate, this is not what this mm-hmm. was about, blah, blah, blah. And with Suzanne Vanker, that disinvite came from uncomfortable learning, but it was because of student pushback. Yeah, the previous. So you were part of the group, but you were not the only leader. Exactly. There were many leaders. There was and there's exactly. You say, you, you say something like it's rules. a democracy. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you've got, you know, three people who are kind of running uncomfortable learning, mm-hmm. or like really running the group, yeah. and two of them have been doing it for two, three years now, you know, well, I've only been a part of the group for a year, and mm-hmm. so they certainly have say in what's going on. And so it was majority, you know, majority rules. So three people making the call, and two of the three wanted to disinvite, so we disinvited. Yeah, and in loyalty to the group, uh, you know, in loyalty to them, I would say this is the decision we've made. While I personally was in favor of, you know, going forward with the event, uh, I, you know, I support my group's decision. So why why get involved in this group? I mean it. It must have made you uncomfortable being on campus, right? Inviting these it, people, it knowing did. that some people in the cafeteria are probably looking at you from afar as like, oh, right. there's that right, guy right. who's right. inviting exactly. John yeah. Derbyshire and Char- Charles Murray. It must have been hard to feel a part of the community. Definitely. I, th- I think for me, it was in some sense, I was wired to do something like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with, I guess, how I was raised. Yeah, and I want to get into that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a family of educators always being pushed to see things from different sides, uh, to be prepared for arguments, for debates, for articulating my point of view. Uh, my mom stressing the importance of being a good listener and being able to empathize. All of those things, for me, I think, brought me to a point where when I arrived at Williams College uh, in the fall of 2014, I was eager to take on difficult intellectual challenges and to see what I could gain from them. Because every conversation I had, no matter how much I tried to listen actively and intently, Mm -hmm. you weren't always going to make the same progress with each individual. Yeah. Well, your background, again, I want to get into it a little bit, would suggest someone who wouldn't be uncomfortable with uncomfortable conversations. But it doesn't necessarily foretell you becoming an <laughs> right. activist no. for uncomfortable no, conversations. Right, that's true. S- some of that also is just things that, you know, how I uh, intellectually, how I developed through the years. And so me seeing, you know, wanting to be engaged in political issues in my future, wanting to be engaged with, with uh, public life, wanting to be a part of public life. To me, I said, you know what, these are issues I can't shy away from. These are concerns and grievances and uh, challenges that we face in our time that I want to be prepared to handle. Yeah. And I'll never be able to do a perfect job, but maybe I'll be able to, to be more effective in, in creating change if I take this on in college. Were you sensing what was happening on college campuses across the country when you became involved in uncomfortable learning? Or was this like as everything was starting to percolate? And the issue became hot and you just happened to have become involved in a group like this at the time when journalists at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are writing about it. You know, it it was when I first got involved with uncomfortable learning, I did not understand free speech as a broad banner, significant issue on campus. Free speech was something that I knew about. I'd read the work of a few constitutional legal scholars. What was this, 2014 2014 2014-ish, yeah. yeah that's before the, the Yale uh, controversy exactly. with Nicholas Kostakis. Exactly. That's before the protests at University of Missouri. You got it, exactly. When these issues became hot. Exactly. So I was like aware of the fact that there had been some issues about what could be said. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard things like a bias incident. Mm-hmm. I'd heard of- uh, Maybe things, free speech zones. Free speech zones. Yeah. I've heard of like a safe space. But it was not like the defining issue or one of the defining uh-huh. issues of my generation really. And so when I get involved, I get involved out of personal interest, kind of a you know, philosophical commitment to you know, the market of ideas, being engaged in the market of ideas, trying to further develop and refine my own, seeing, you know, where does my mind change, right? Why hasn't my mind changed, right? What are the nuances and complexities of, uh, of things that kind of hold the attention uh, and interest of many? And so that was what led me to the work and that was what sustained my commitment to it. And then I guess it was, you know, 
some of this is a part of my personality, but if I believe in something and I am pushing for something, advocating for something, and it happens to not be easy to do so, I'm not the kind of person who's just going to stop doing yeah. it because it's difficult. Yeah. And so that's how this unfolded into a, a saga of some sort. In your book, you talk about how you did a lot of news interviews. Reporters right. would reach out exactly. to you and talk about what was happening at Williams and across the country. And at one point, there's a reporter who asks you, you know, more or less the same question I just asked you. Why are you doing this? What makes right. you different? What yep. makes you one of the three people at Williams exactly. who wants to become a part of Uncomfortable Learning right. and invite these people to campus? And she asked, he or she asked, you know, are you just wired differently? And in your book, that's your segue to talking about all the stuff you had to deal with growing exactly. up, which this is a memoir that takes you from almost the time that you must be like a toddler yeah, exactly. through yeah, yeah. present day. Exactly. And I've read a lot of memoirs and especially your early life. It's moving. Right. And I've known you for a couple of years. Yeah, I knew none yeah. of this. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see you every day. You're right. wearing a suit and tie. Yeah, You're yeah, one of the most exactly. articulous guys Thank I know, you. but you had a lot of challenges yeah, coming up. And the definitely. book almost reminds me of uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, yeah. like understanding a way someone else lives. Because I grew up upper middle class. Right. I did not have the challenges you right, had. Right, and right, I'd never, right. I've never seen those sorts of challenges from this sort of perspective right. before. So- Let's start with growing up with your mom outside right. Detroit. Yeah. Your mom had a mental health issue yep. that was very tough for you to understand growing up. Exactly. So she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And schizoaffective disorder is basically a combination of the symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, yep. and bipolar. So that means you've got mood swings, paranoid delusions, a, an extremely volatile, unpredictable personality. So what this meant was that even though she was diagnosed when I was 10, from the point that my parents got divorced when I was three, and I lived with my mom, saw my dad a few times a week. He was in Washington, D.C. Right. And then when we moved to Detroit, I saw him less frequently. Mm -hmm. But what this meant, my mom's illness, was that every day I would wake up and I wouldn't know, was she going to be happy or sad? Was she going to be angry and upset? You know, was she going to be, I, I had to read signs and I had to pay very close attention to certain behavioral cues, learn to read her eyes, her mm -hmm. behavior, what she was saying, what she wasn't saying. Because you didn't want to exacerbate things. And Absolutely you also not. Yeah. thought that you were the cause of it. Yeah, because when you're younger and your mom is so upset at you over dropping your fork at the dinner table. You just can't understand why she's so mad at me all the time. Mm -hmm. And any child, any young child, you want a positive, loving, right, nurturing relationship Stable. with your mom. Stable relationship yeah. with your mom. And when that is not manifest, when that's not what you have, and what you have is closer to the opposite of that, you just you can't help but wonder, am I the call? Am I the problem? Mm -hmm. And so I spent so much of my childhood thinking about how I could be a better son, more caring, more loving son, more understanding mm -hmm. son. And so even when there were times where I really resented what my mother did and resented her for the things she did, I was always still thinking, how can I be more understanding? What what do? How can I be more empathic? How can I show her that I love her and care about her and and just make our relationship better. That was always a concern. And so essentially the effect was it made me a very conscientious person mm -hmm. where I was constantly aware of everything I did and said, how I said it and you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Did you have a sense at the time that your home life was different? Yes. No, I, I certainly did not. Hey, yeah, no, I said, well, you started, I think you started in a public school, but then you got into yeah. some of these elite private, private schools, schools yeah. and you saw how your friends lived with gated yes. communities, huge yes, exactly. manors or right, mansions. Right, yeah, right. I should say to my mother's credit, the reason why I ended up on the private school track in large part, I had done well on a standardized test. Mm -hmm. And so it was mentioned before my mom made this move, but my teacher wrote on my progress support that, uh, Zach asks a lot of questions, and the fact that he is asking these questions is a little disruptive. And these were all, you know, <laughs> yeah. serious questions about the stuff we were reading. But I would read stuff that was not assigned, that might have challenged or complicated what we were assigned to read in class. And so, uh, my my mom was like, you know, this is not the kind of education I want my son to receive. You should be encouraged to explore your curiosity and take on more intellectual And she was a scholar herself. She had a master's exactly. degree. She graduated from exactly. college. She, you know, all but dissertation at one point. So she went all the way to get uh -huh. her, her PhD. And so 
she said, I'm going to put you in a private school. You're not going to stay in a school where, you know, uh, you're, you're just encouraged to be obedient and get your work done on time. Yeah. So I give her credit for that. Yeah. But the, the relationship you, you had started to, it started to deteriorate and it you did. started to recognize yeah. it more as you got older and exactly. you started talking with people about the relationship. Exactly. Your mom was making you uncomfortable asking exactly. very private things about oh, like yeah. your sex life. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. eventually that resulted in child protective services yeah. coming to your home. Exactly. So when I got to the point that I was toward the end of middle school is eighth grade mm-hmm. and I'm no longer just interested in girls, but actually want to date someone and things like this. Yeah. My mom became extremely invasive. She wanted to know everything, every text message I sent, every phone call I made. If I was just going to go up the street to get a slice of pizza from this place, she wanted, she thought maybe I'm sneaking around to go see my girlfriend, this yeah, girlfriend. It's that like I she's had. jealous. It, exactly. It was yeah. like she was jealous. And so she became incredibly invasive and it became very clear to me after a series of events that I was not going to be able to stay with my mom mm-hmm. and really develop into the person that I think in some sense she really wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. That would not be possible if I were to stay with her. Mm-hmm. There would be too much anxiety, too much stress, too much invasion of my privacy. Mm-hmm. And and there were forms of abuse going on emotionally and psychologically. That you didn't were, recognize as abuse until someone, someone actually said the word. Exactly. And when they first said it, I was like, ah, no, 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 that's yeah. not the case. And so, because I, I wanted to kind of resist that label, right? I didn't mm-hmm. like the idea of that. And so... um once I came to terms with that, you know, I recognized that the best thing for me, for my my personal aspirations of of going as far as I can with with uh, my interest in the life of the mind and things of that nature, was to to leave my mom's custody and and, and go if possible and live with my father. Which you did. I did. And that brought challenges all Other their own. Challenge. I mean, your oh, yeah. dad comes across as a hero in the book. This yeah. is a guy who works three jobs, you know, works from there early morning. There is no more hardworking person than I know of. I mean, this guy had three, four jobs at once, delivering newspapers, working as an accounts payable coordinator, doing valet, doing Uber once he got a car. I mean, there is nothing my dad would not do to ensure that uh, me and my sister have greater life chances than he did. Yeah, and he would work from early in the morning and then not get home till like yeah, two, yeah. two, you know. I, People I think I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> That's where I get it from. He yeah, and he was living with your grandmother mm-hmm. and your uncle, I believe. Grandmother, who, uncle, yep. Me. In Anacostia, yep. which is a rougher part of Washington, exactly. D.C. Uh, and the things you're telling me about uh, home, it sounds like a very loving environment, but yeah. poor yeah. You know, you got leaks in the roof every time it oh, rains. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have a floor, you have a, a weak floorboard in the kitchen. So, and my grandmother has diabetes. And so the medication she takes makes her gain weight. And we don't really even have uh, you know, money even now, you know, now for the, for certain things, conveniences that would be helpful for her to have. And so she's got to kind of like tiptoe around the kitchen. This is when I was in high school. Yeah. She was and, a janitor and a janitor, exactly. supervisor. Exactly. And that was just extremely extremely difficult to see to see her have to do that just to get to the refrigerator to cook or make a sandwich or do whatever mm-hmm. she's going to do she's got to go through these weak floorboards and we're worried about the floor caving in mm-hmm. so you know you've got things and like the that basement in is, has got day. like mold and mold mildew because it's mildew. wet exactly and there, there are leaks everywhere mm-hmm. there, you know at one point there was a leak at the top of the steps there's a leak over the sink there was no money to fix the, the foundation no money to fix the foundation and the house is in utter disrepair and has been for 15 years now. Yeah. You see what I mean? So that was just this kind of daily thing hanging over my head on top of the commute and taking yeah, and all these Yeah. Classes so all amidst that. all of this, yeah. you're, you're sleeping on the floor next to your dad who's yeah. sleeping on a five foot couch. Yeah, right. He's six feet tall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, your parents, your mom and your dad still wanted you to get that exemplary education exactly. and you had, you had the intellectual chops to do it. And there was this yeah. school in Potomac, Maryland. Yeah. Two hours by public transportation oh, yeah. to get to, and you would go there. You would take, you know, the subway. You'd yep. catch the bus it's in a very rough part of town. Exactly. People were aggressive. You were assaulted yep. at one point, yep. and you'd go there and you spend your day there. And then you had to get home after doing all these extracurriculars. Exactly. So you know, I, I, 
I live here, you know, I live in Arlington. Yeah, I, yeah, I work yeah. in Washington, DC. I've yeah. got a 30 minute commute. I get, I'm tired when I get home at right, the end of the right, day. Exactly. Right. I couldn't so, even imagine what it was like for you. You're oh, reading journal articles, you're reading books. You have yeah. this drive to succeed right. and overcome everything that's going on in your life. And also try to not let anyone see it. Exactly. Cause you didn't right. want it to be viewed that way. Exactly. I wanted to come to school and be seen as the student who was ready to go. Mm-hmm. who was prepared to answer the questions that the teachers had in class. Uh, my favorite uh, uh, courses were history and English. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, to be able to anticipate the questions and be ready for the questions. I wanted to be a leading contributor in class discussions. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a student tutor. That was something I really valued, was being able to help my peers. And so trying to tutor and help and you know being an ambassador and a peer mentor. I held like six or seven leadership positions at one point. I was involved in Model UN because mm-hmm. it was the closest thing to yeah. a debate society. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I was interested in politics and international relations. So it fit perfectly. And I prepared for these Model UN conferences. And so I'm doing all of these things, juggling all these responsibilities on top of you know, three APs and four honors courses. And, and, and then this commute, there was a point there where it was just extremely overwhelming. And I described this scene in the book where it took a physical toll at one point and I ended up in the hospital because I wanted to stay up and, and read all yeah, this you stuff. Yeah, you had a, the, you got it so exhausted you needed to be taken exactly. to the hospital, you collapsed next to your bed exactly. as you were studying. Yeah. There was, yeah. you talk about uh, how you had to code switch. Mm-hmm. What is, what, what does it mean to code switch? And, and tell right. me about some of the environments that you were in and, yeah. and what that meant and how you had to change your personality to. Right sometimes get home safely. Safely, right. Code switching meant that when I was on my way home or even on the first quarter to the first half of my commute from home to school, because of the environment I was in, because of the the, the community I was in and the people uh, who were in that uh, in the space at that time, I had to say less. I had to change my demeanor. I had to comport myself a little bit differently, walk differently. Why? Because... It was almost like they could smell fear or smell weakness or smell the fact that I didn't quite come from the neighborhood. These are, these are the people hanging out on the street exactly, or on the corner. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, if you're worried, well, is there a chance I might be robbed? Is there a chance I might be hurt? Is there a chance I might end up in an altercation with someone? You know, some people say when you hear these things, oh, that's a stereotype and you shouldn't think that. But it is a very real thing when you're in a community that is under-resourced and you know that crime and violence are are adjacent to where you are, that you just become very aware. I mean, I lived in a community where if I walked three or four blocks from where my actual home was and I looked at someone the wrong way, that could lead to me being killed. And I understood that. And so because of that, you become hyper aware. My mom already made me a pretty critically vigilant person. And so I was paying attention to people's body language and you know, you, just, you stuck it looks stuck stuck out like a sore thumb. You're oh, wearing yeah. a private school you uniform. Always walking around with a book. Yeah, and I was walking, and I didn't have contacts until my <laughs> my uh, junior year. So I, you know, got glasses on. Uh-huh. You know, all this. Yeah, and uh, so it, you know, I looked like, uh, you know, I was a studious kid, and and that was not the norm. It wasn't cool to be. Mm. Uh, you said some people said it was you were acting white. You acting white, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you just the one thing I learned was that. Part of code switching was when you encountered someone, you knew how to diffuse the situation. So you talk the way that they talk, but you don't try to you don't try to aggress upon them in any way. You don't try to challenge them in any way. It seemed like your go to line was like, "I don't want any trouble, man." He's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like I would call him, "You're the boss. You're the boss." You know, whatever you know, what I mean? whatever. <laughs> yeah. you, you defer respectfully, and you don't show that you're afraid because if you show that you're afraid, then some people might think they can take advantage of you in some way, but you just respectfully kind of diffuse the situation. No disrespect, boss, you know, whatever you want. So it's in this environment that you, you rise up through it and you end up at Williams. Why did you choose Williams after you graduated? So for me, part of it was you have this thing called tutorial courses, which sound like the idyllic intellectual engagement mm-hmm. for me, right? I mean, tutorial like, courses that they have those oh, at Williams. So, yeah. So at Williams, you have these things called tutorial courses, which is where you would basically have, let's say you're the professor. It would be me and one other student, one other peer. And we would be, we could be discussing the work of Walt Whitman or William James or whomever. Yeah. And uh, we would get 
into the details, the nitty gritty stuff. You appear in the professor. In the professor. And the idea was that one week I would write a primary paper and my my partner would write a critique of it and then Mm -hmm. we would alternate. Yeah. And so I love this. I mean, yeah, you know, of course. this yeah. is perfect for me. And so once I found out about this, I started saying, is that an option at Harvard? Because mm-hmm. Harvard had always been in my mind as, you know, the the uh, the school that is most well known for being the best school. Yeah. Right. Whether it necessarily is or not, it's a great school, of course. But I thought that if I went to Williams College, I would be the you know first rate priority to my professors. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that if I went to Williams, their top priority would be being on CNN or their next big research fund, or their, you know, or their grad students. I knew that at a liberal arts college, the top liberal arts college, my education, my learning, me developing relationships with my professors was something that'd be taken seriously. And so in the end, beyond rankings, beyond a visit, it wasn't the location. It was the, the, and uh, and was all that stuff true after you got to Williams? Do you feel as though you got that sort of interest and attention from your professors? And did that interest and attention wane when you became a controversial figure on campus? It's a great question. So I would say the first thing I should note is that I took eight of these tutorials in my first two years. And that was like an absurd number. And so I got- Were those classes, Was the, did you get class credit for them or were they ancillary to the main class? No, no, no. Class? These, were, these were class credits. They were seen as like the the most intense courses you could take. And you'd meet like once a week or something. You'd meet like once a week. And the, there's actually a record. The record was nine in four years. Mm. And so at one point I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take way more, but then I went to Columbia for a year. So I took eight of my first two years yeah. and I just love this. I couldn't get enough of it. You mm-hmm. get the debate, you get the engagement, you get to focus on the details, every question you have, you get to discuss. And so I had great discussions about poets. Mm-hmm. I had great discussions about Richard Wright about James Baldwin. I had, Were you an English major? No, well, so I majored in politics, but I took courses in psychology, yeah. English, and anthropology, and a range. Mm-hmm. Some of the best discussions I had in college were about Sigmund Freud in this mm-hmm. tutorial I took on Freud. So there was rigorous intellectual engagement. There was vigorous debate. However, outside the context of these tutorials, which typically someone taking a tutorial was prepared for that mm-hmm. and was taking it because they were interested mm-hmm. in that and kind of fleshing out tensions between yeah. ideas and concepts. So the students that were there were set and ready to go, yeah. right? They were there for a reason. Broadly speaking, on campus, whether it's in dorms or dining halls, the general feel, vibe, right, of the campus climate was that people were less open to debating sensitive things, right? Things like uh, how do you explain achievement gaps between races in terms of test scores and things like that. Things like how you address issues of racial inequality, how you address gender inequality, how you address, uh, you know, people who want to break the gender binary and don't really believe in just there being male and female, but any number of other identities. Mm-hmm. And why were you interested in talking about this stuff? Because it matters in society right now. I'm someone who's a big, I mean, inequality, income inequality matters to me. Yeah, social you've experienced mobi- it. Yeah. yeah. Social mobility and economic opportunity matter to me. Gender inequality matters to me. These are issues I want to address and I hope in the future to be a part of, of creating positive change with respect to these areas. And so for me, that meant making the most of my four years on a college campus in terms of having that kind of intellectual discourse, right? That would help me gain a better understanding. So that meant having tough conversations. That meant talking to people who, you know, it was going to be a little difficult to reach them. And so it was a very slow process. And there were times where I'd sit down and I'd talk to someone for an hour and a half and we would not, neither of us would modify our positions <laughs> at all. Yeah. But I think the person walked away understanding, wow, Zach Wood is really serious about this. And I walked away understanding that this person is not opposed to uncomfortable learning because they just don't like ideas or they don't like learning. They're opposed to it because they're very traumatic personal experiences that they've had that make it extremely difficult for them to accept the idea of having someone who questions the number of sexual assaults on campus. How empathetic were you to those arguments? Because you see this in the free speech world a lot, that to hear certain arguments for some people is an attack on them personally and causes has a physical manifestation in them. It's harmful to them and, and their safety. 
you didn't have it so easy yourself. Right. So there are two ways that somebody like yourself could respond. You could be very empathetic to that, or you could be very dismissive and be like, I've had those same experiences. <laughs> right, right. They might have been even worse than yours. I've been able to overcome them. You know, part of dealing with them is, is you know, gaining a sort of resilience. How did you respond in these situations? So the, the first thing was kind of putting my, my, my skills to the test and kind of doing what my mom taught me to do, which was listen first and ask questions that will give you a better understanding of the other person. I never wanted to be someone who just talked about uh, engagement. Yeah, just lectured about, you know, I wanted to practice what I preached about. Yeah, so, so you took the Ben Franklin approach, which is right. just ask questions. Exactly. I would ask questions. So if I were talking to you about a sensitive topic or an issue that you didn't think a, a controversial speaker should yeah. be on campus speaking about, my first few questions would be, so when did you develop that understanding, right? Are there significant life experiences that you're open to sharing or conversations that led you to that viewpoint. So I get a better understanding of you and so that you don't think I'm just here to persuade and convince and win and dominate the conversation. Yeah. Now, there were times where it was clear someone was just there to debate and they just wanted to debate so that we could get straight to it. Yeah. That's what they wanted to do. But so that was the tact I would take. In terms of how empathetic I was, even though I it was you know kind of firm in my convictions and my beliefs about what should be done on campus and the approach we should take. I was very interested in in trying to convey that I did not expect this to be easy for people and that there really are a number of legitimate reasons for it to be difficult. Now, just because I think it's difficult does not mean that I don't think it should happen. But there are legitimate reasons for why it would be difficult for some students, minorities, uh, to hear someone like Charles Murray on campus. And there are reasons that would be apparent to those students that might not be apparent to a number of professors. And I think that is a conversation we should have. Where I would end up disagreeing, for the most part, with that person is that even though I understood where they were coming from, my kind of end point would be, and so I totally understand if you don't want to come to the talk, but I do think there should be a space for those who want to engage in that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? We shouldn't shut the space down just because this is grievous for, you know, or, or mm -hmm. challenging for. But did you ever talk to them about their emotional mindset in engaging with mm -hmm. speech or their reaction to certain right. speech? The idea being that how Language. you think about something can change. And it right. seems for you that you're not afraid of an argument. An mm -hmm. argument isn't going to wound you because right. you're not going to let it wound you because <laughs> right. you, you believe you have agency that's right. separate Right. from the arguments people are making. And the only way to overcome them is to defeat them right. in the gauntlet of intellectual discourse. Right. So, I mean, I would try to, I would try to kind of acknowledge and, and stay mindful of the fact that you know, people have different, uh, uh, different proclivities, different capacities, different interests, different ways of dealing with things. And so I could never expect every person to say, yeah, let's debate, let's do it right now. Yeah. I could not expect everyone to do that. But I could explain the virtues of discomfort, intellectual discomfort. Mm -hmm. I could explain the the virtues of of uh, testing your conclusions, of rethinking firmly held beliefs, right? Questioning your assumptions and presuppositions. I could, I could explain those things and I could try to do it in a way that was intelligible, in a way that might be more relatable. And so with respect to the emotional mindset, I mean, look, it's clear to me, I think some are healthier than others. I think that there's a good way of, I think that there are a number of good ways of going about handling Charles Murray on campus if you don't want him to be there. Write an op-ed in the school newspaper about why you don't think he should be there. Yeah. Use speech. Yeah. Write an article saying, Zach Wood, I get what you're doing, but hold, hold on. Hold it. Hold it. These are my three or four reasons why I don't think he should be here. And I would be, I would love to sit down and talk with you about it. Or, or, uh, you know, you can, you can create, you can create a protest beforehand. As long as the protest is not disrupting or interfering with his right and ability to actually articulate his views when he arrives, I have no problem with you, you know, having, having a protest of some sort. I'd probably come to it. 
check it out and, and, and the administration would let you have it. <laughs> if the administration would let yeah. you have it. But you see what I'm saying? There are a number yeah. of ways to exercise dissent. Show up. This is, of course, the one that I favored the most. Show up and listen closely and surprise him with the question that he hasn't been asked. Or say, you know what, on this page of your book, you say this, and I think here, this is what I think are the likely conclusions to be drawn from it. And my horse sense tells me this is a bad idea because these are the kinds of ideas it propagates in society. And I have an issue with it. Tell them that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You. There was a moment, you've been to fire summer yeah. conferences before. Yeah, I have, yeah. And there was one two years ago. I recommend them. I recommend yes, them. Yes, please. You yeah, can go I to fire.org and I don't know that we're announcing or taking registrations for next summer's conference, but okay. just monitor it. You came to one conference <laughs> did, yeah. and you asked a really great question of one of our keynote speakers. Yes. And you might be you might know what I'm about to yeah. ask you. Is uh, Jason Riley, yes. your former colleague at yep. the Wall Street yep. Journal. He's a conservative black mm-hmm. intellectual. Right. And you asked him a very Zach yeah. Wood question. Yeah, exactly. He said, yeah. Yeah. if I'm recalling it co- yeah. correctly, what is one argument made by someone with whom you disagree yep. who is that has really stung you, that has right. really made you've you reconsider exactly. your premises that yep. you've learned from. As and for I'll, two. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I'll never forget it. He wasn't able to respond. He was not able to respond. Yeah. He didn't have an intellectual opponent with whom he could articulate something he disagreed with but learned something from exactly. or maybe even changed his mind. And that exactly. that was a I spent that entire night thinking, <laughs> when have I changed my mind? If <laughs> right, someone was right, going to yeah. ask me that question, right, yeah, and yeah. I want to be a serious intellectual, yeah. I better have a response. Exactly, yeah. Because as Alice Dreger, former Northwestern Prof- University professor, once said, if you've never changed your mind recently, how do you know it's working? Exactly. And exactly. so, you know, I'd thought of some things, and I, right. I, I'm pretty confident I'd be able to right. articulate some things I've changed my mind on, especially yeah. in the era of Donald Trump. Right, 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 yeah. But, uh, that, you know, what did you think after that? Yeah, I was just, it was, I was a little disappointed, you yeah. know, because I mean, he's a smart guy who's given this talk many times, but you know, I wanted to, I wanted to know, you know, who are, you know, he is, he is well-read, uh, you know. Smart guy. He, yeah, he's, he's been on this podcast. Guy. Yeah, it was clear he had thought through his argument. I wanted to know, can you give me two examples of arguments from liberal thinkers, philosophers, commentators, political figures that have really stumped you, that have challenged you, mm-hmm. that have made you pause and backpedal and say, ah, I'm not sure this mm-hmm. position or the, the logical flow of this argument makes sense. And so when he didn't have an answer, I was like, hmm, okay. And then and then also when he kind of evaded answering the question, yeah. he kind of slid past yeah. the question. And so you know, I thought that that was useful. I thought that that was important. Mm-hmm. Right for people to see, you know, this it was is important for me. That yeah, question, exactly, even though there right. wasn't a as a satisfactory answer, <laughs> answer right? Exactly. The question forced me to ask myself exactly know, what. How would I answer that? Exactly right. And so that's the approach that I hope students, especially. Again, I understand everyone's different. Some people want to be artists and painters or pianists. Uh-huh. Some people want to be school teachers. Some people want to be political figures. Some people uh-huh. want to be scholars, right? Some people want to come and work for an organization like FIRE. People want to do different things. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I'm not expecting everybody to be interested in coming to hear Jason Riley speak, whom I invited to Williams, by the way. Did you? Yeah, I invited him to Williams. How'd that go? So there, because of the timing of the talk, he didn't receive as large of an audience as one would have expected, mm-hmm. but there was serious dialogue. I again asked a few questions, um, and uh, I asked him a question about something he'd said about Thomas Sowell and welfare mm-hmm. policy. The the, uh, the conservative economist. Economist, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so there was a good discussion afterwards. Hmm. Very good discussion. So, what does success look like for uncomfortable learning at Williams? Actually, let me rephrase the question. Do you feel like the effort, everything you went through at Williams to see uncomfortable learning, bring controversial speakers to campus and hopefully encourage students to engage in the dialogue that you wanted to see, was it successful? In retrospect, did you move the needle on campus towards more open discourse and talking across lines of difference? You graduated this year. Right, right. I think I graduated in June of this year. I think that there was a point in which Mm – you had 20 students on campus who would have never been interested in um, thinking about Chris Christie's platform when he ran for office, who were interested in thinking about Chris Christie's platform. I think you had maybe 20 to 50 students or so who were not interested in thinking about what Jason Riley had to say 
but were actually reading and thinking about an article that I'd sent out in an email to people because I had worked so hard at one point while I was on campus, meeting with people individually, trying to explain the virtues of what I was doing and trying to show them this wasn't just about my intellectual engagement, but about the Williams community, about, you know, really, in some sense, the efficacy of me and my peers when we get out in the world in terms of our ability to affect change, mm-hmm. right, to pursue issues of of justice and equality, right, and uh, and to promote those things in effective ways. And so when I was doing that work at its peak, I think I was making some difference, even if only individually. I never changed the broader campus community in the ways that I'd hoped. Yeah, have it you seen difficult. this response to the effort by some faculty to get – the Chicago statement passed at Williams. Chicago statement for our listeners who are not familiar with it is a statement that was written by uh, a group of people at the University of Chicago, I believe 2014, early 2015, that articulated a vision for a liberal arts university. Exemplary. Right. That privileged academic freedom and exactly. free speech as a way yep. to learn. And I think something like close to 50 or, or above 50 universities have adopted a form right. of this statement. And some faculty members at Williams wanted to get it yep. passed, but there was a response from students. Had you heard about this? I had. I had. I'd actually received uh, two interview requests for it. Uh, really? Before this, yeah. Because I had, so, I had a hard time believing it was real, not because the arguments in it were seemed unreal. Right, it was right, right. just it was circulating through a Google doc. Right. And so, you know, I want to ask right. someone right. who is, is more connected to the community right, right, right. than me. Like, is this actually, you notice I'm mentioned indirectly in there at the end. I know. They, so you know, let's, they throw me a bone. Yeah. <laughs> they, so let's actually read through it. If yeah. I think it's real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's real. Uh, it's real. Um, the arguments the students are making against yeah. the Chicago right. statement. So right. this will take a minute. I'm, I'm just quoting a few passages right. here that I right. think are representative. Recently, a petition has circulated throughout the faculty urging the college to adopt a statement released by the University of Chicago in 2015, which claims to defend the right to free speech and free expression on college campuses. And the students are angry in the first couple of paragraphs because they weren't involved in the process of petitioning for the statement. They say not allowing students into the discussion and circulation of the petition limits the potential for conflicting viewpoints and is thus completely antithetical to a free speech premise. And then they go on to say, with increasing visible violence towards the most marginalized by our society, why is this discussion happening now? Free speech, which they put in question marks, as a term has been co-opted by right wing and liberal parties as a discursive cover for racism, xenophobia, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, phobia, ableism, and classism. They continue, why can't we actually have a campus-wide discussion on this issue, one that is not dominated by conservative and white faculty? Can this instead be an opportunity to take a critical eye to how free speech is constructed and weaponized at institutions like Williams? They continue later. And while the University of Chicago statement says that students, quote, may not obstruct or otherwise interfere with the freedom of others to express views they reject, close quote, the issue is that these are not views we reject. And this gets back to something we were talking about earlier. They say they are views that reject us and our very right to speak slash breathe. And this is where they start talking about you indirectly. Yeah, right. Who does this campus prioritize and who does this statement truly aim to protect? John Derbyshire is a self-proclaimed, quote, racist and, quote, homophobe who was invited to speak at Williams by Uncomfortable Learning and Zach Wood in 2016. <laughs> they continue, I was flattered, really. <laughs> yeah. Adam Falk, who was the president yeah. at the time, disinvited Derbyshire to campus, but a free speech absolutism policy like the one in this petition would have limited the president and allowed Derbyshire to spew homophobia and anti-black racism on campus. They continue, who are we okay with making uncomfortable? Why are we so driven to make making those particular people uncomfortable? If we are so insistent on making them uncomfortable, then at least we need some institutional support to get through all the discomfort that you are thrusting upon us. It continues, and then at the bottom of his list of signatories. Right. He got a, quite a number. Yeah, yes. I didn't count, but yeah, there were... 30, maybe? Yeah. A uh, and you never want to say that this, this sort of view is representative of the whole campus because right. you just don't know. No. There were a few names on there I was shocked to see, actually. I, really? You know, yeah. There were but you knew them. Shocked. These I are friends? Yeah, or... Not all of them, but I knew some of them. Yeah. So what, what was your response? Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> I disagree. 
I disagree. Yeah, obviously. I, I strongly, right. I disagree yeah. strongly. Um, you know, there's one point in there that I think is important, important to acknowledge. And, uh, uh, Jeffrey Stone, a, uh, a professor at U Chicago who's who drafted the yeah, Chicago exactly, statement exactly yeah. um, has noted this. There is a sense in which political correctness has been used uh, by some on the right. It's used in ways on the left too, mm-hmm. but it's politicized. This this whole issue of free speech is politicized, and for some on the right, there are some who are who are concerned about debate and intellectual discourse on campus uh, and the life of the mind and so forth. Mm-hmm. But th- there are some people out there who this is a political battle. And because conservative views are in the minority on some college campuses, it's important for that reason. Do they, so they say that there's conservative faculty at Williams. How many are there? I mean, it didn't. So there's uh, there's one person who, if you ask him, he'll say he's conservative in the political science department. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be some visiting professors there since I've left that I don't yeah. know about. But uh, there might be five, four, yeah. four or five, uh, and then a number of moderate centrist liberals uh, the re- the majority is about where Hillary Clinton stands, where Barack Obama stands mm-hmm. politically down the line, and they seem to criticize those people supporters. as well as being neoliberal. They say liberal ideology asserts <laughs> yeah. that morality is logical, that dehumanizing ideas can be fixed with logic, and therefore need to be debated. So it seems like their their critique is from the left of the left, right? So basically, what I gave you was the one point in there that I think is valid that should be addressed. The 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 overwhelming majority yeah. of the statement I, I disagree with, right? I think we should acknowledge that there are points in time in which this debate is politicized by some, but that there are a lot of people out there who are really concerned about the fact that it's become increasingly difficult to have difficult conversations on mm-hmm. campus. And um, I think it just, I think um, I am sympathetic to, to some of the grievances. They talked about the the visibility of, uh, of, uh, of, of seeing minorities. I forget exactly how they phrased it, but there, we do live in a time where, you know, videos of police misconduct, you see them often on social media. And me, you know, coming from Ward 8 in Washington, D.C., you know, that's something that hit, hits home, you know, that uh, that I've seen. That's a conversation I've had with my parents. So, you know, I understand uh, some of the grievances and concerns, but I don't think, no, I, I don't think that having Charles Murray on campus denies their right to speak or their right to breathe. That's just not true. That's not accurate. I'm, I'm, I never had distortion of, I never had the same experiences as you. Right. So, or, or many of these students. So for me, it seems as though a protection of free speech was in essence, in my mind, I believe a protection for the minority. You do not need a first amendment to protect, you know, views that the majority favors, uh, you know, the vote democracy protects those sorts of things. But it seems as though they're arguing when they say, with increasingly visible violence towards those most marginalized by our society, why is this discussion happening now? It's it's either you either discuss about the visible violence or right. you discuss <laughs> right. free speech. It's a zero sum game. You can't discuss that, you know, right? Exactly. So where are they seeing the connection? The connection between uh, free speech and the sort of violence that they think we should be talking about i think they they see john derbyshire for example and they say that's that, free speech yeah yeah exactly. that's free speech exactly. and it's also free speech that it happens to be harmful to this cause which is the cause of marginalized communities on whom well, you know this, visible violence is being done there's just this one aspect of it that i think is kind of left out of the discussion and i think that's there was a time where the goal of more progressive factions on on universities mm-hmm. university campuses the goal was to increase the presence of minorities. That was one of the goals. And there is a sense in which that's still the goal, but it's gone a step further where now the goal is everyone has to feel included. Everyone has to feel welcome. Everyone has to feel like they belong. And if Zach says that he does not feel like he belongs because the expression of a particular viewpoint harms him, causes psychological trauma. Let's just ex- play along with the argument. For yeah, me. of course. Right? Yeah. Causes psychological trauma. We can't, we can't have this because we want Zach, yeah. a student, an African-American student from a disadvantaged community, to feel welcome. You see the Zach logic. Zach can never fun. feel as though he belongs. Exactly. If, if there is have, someone here you've who- You've got it. You've got it. Yeah. And that is where, that is the error. And I don't think we frame it in that way. And I think it's, I think it's illuminating when we do. The error is that the tone, in some sense, is really set by professors and administrators. 
So yes, you see the the complaints and the petitions and so forth often put forward by students. You get some students like this who uh, t- tend to be pretty far to the left who would say things like someone like me should have been punished while I was at Williams and uh, you know suspended or something. And you never were. Me. I never was, yeah. but they you know they would suggest that that should mm-hmm. happen. Um the tone is set by professors who don't permit certain things being said in their class. The tone is set. Did that by, ever happen? The, yeah, they're, they're, the tone is set by by professors who, when you on the first day in their class, they say, "Well, I know everyone in here is on the left, and so we really don't need to discuss that stupid point of view." I, I've heard that from other. Like I never that. experienced that in my classrooms. Right. I, I went to Indiana University, but I have yeah. heard students talk about that having that sort of experience oh, yeah. in a particular sort of class like my buddy coleman hughes at columbia yeah, yeah. talked about how there were certain philosophy i was classes. in a class with coleman were you really yeah, were yeah, you was, in that class it's called darwinism oh okay yeah yeah a little less contentious than some of the others he's written about but. yeah yeah he wrote an article about one such class in exactly. which there were certain topics off right. limits right. for heterodox academy I yeah. believe it was a blog post and yeah. i'll try and remember to put that yeah. in the show notes but it's astounding to me that in a university, uh, not only are certain topics off limits, but if right. you bring them up, you'll almost be vilified. Exactly. So, where do we go from here? What are you What are you doing now? Actually, I want to ask you this, yeah. and uh, feel free to not answer it. No, yeah, sure. You open up your life. Yeah. You open up your soul in this <laughs> right, book. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You open up your family. What is What has that response been like from your family? from those people close to you to writing a tell-all more or yeah, less. And I, yeah. you do things in the book to kind of protect some people. Yes. Change course. names. Yep, yep. Do composite characters. Right. right. Uh, but I, I imagine it's, most of it is yeah. true to life. Exactly. It is. And, and you're not, you're not, uh, you know, you make some mistakes in the course yeah, of your life too, that exactly. you're very open about. Exactly. I'm very, I try to be transparent and upfront uh-huh. about things uh-huh. and where I need to protect identities. I try yeah. to do so, but, yeah. It has been all in all the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. Mm-hmm. Writing the book and then knowing just that it's on a shelf. Well, why did you feel like it. you had to do it? I didn't feel like I had to, but mm-hmm. I felt like for someone who cares about the life of the mind, for someone who cares about having influence, for someone who wants to pursue a career in public service, for someone who who values communicating with people individually in in larger groups. For someone who wants to be a part of conversations about race and class and inequality and healthcare and opportunity and access to greater education, I think that there might be some value, even if it's small in me sharing my story. I, I think it absolutely is. I think people better connect with stories than they do abstract philosophical or policy arguments. Right, and exactly. I learned, I, honestly, more about what it means to live in a poor impoverished neighborhood or to live with someone with a mental illness from your story than I would from any sort of abstract argument about, uh, you know, for example, welfare policy or social policy in poor neighborhoods. I I hear about Ward 8 all the time on NPR uh, here in in the district, but never has the impact and understanding of what the average person or what some people in that community have to go through on a day-to-day basis just to get by. Right. So, I mean, in that sense, it was very valuable to me. Thank you. But, you know, you're Zach Wood. You got to live with yeah. your family who right. you, you talk about in some in-depth ways. My mom was not uh, a, f- a fan. Yeah. And there was a, there was a some, um, some sense she read it? in which she read it. I, I, she read it before it came out. I tried to, to, to find a way to facilitate that and make sure that happened. Yeah. Um, I am sure, I, I, you know, I think. I can't mm-hmm. be certain of this, but I, I get the sense that in some sense or another, she is proud of the fact that her son at 22 is able to write a book. Mm-hmm. And to address these issues that he cares about. Yeah. But that the only thing she can do is kind of be in, in, in this state of denial mm-hmm. with respect to the the story. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, there's a sense in which I could have written a portrayal of my mom that is extremely favorable and completely untrue, and she would still have been upset with something. Mm-hmm. That's just how she is. She comes off as a complex character, as we are. Her, I mean, I tried she's to, yeah. you would never, I don't think, be the man that you are today had she not given you the opportunities Absolutely and access not. to education that Absolutely she did. Not. Yeah, but there's clear the advice, there was a mental health exactly, issue going exactly. on there. So it has been difficult. Mm-hmm. My father, my sister. Uh, both of my grandmothers, my uncle, hmm. a number of my cousins, 
my my uncle Ray, who I described briefly in the book, mm-hmm. he read the whole book. Yeah, and they, you know, a, n- a number of them have read the whole book, and they have been incredibly supportive. Yeah. And without their support, I would not have been able to kind of withstand and uh, overcome some of the more the rougher patches in this process because there yeah. have been rough patches. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the your dad, your grandma, your yeah. uncle, right? I mean, they yeah. come off as like heroes in Ex- this book. Right, right. I mean, I'm really, glad. Right. Yeah. So, well, cool. I want to end by uh, asking you the question that you asked Jason Riley. I mean, what is one thing in this process or in the process of doing uncomfortable learning that you've either come to better understand, learn more about, or yeah. change your mind on? So I'm going to give you a specific issue-based mm-hmm. uh, uh, concern, and then I'll give you a more human relations based. Right. So I'll start with the issue based concern. I spoke at the Heritage Foundation in mid June of this year. And I had a pretty set view on healthcare. I was a I was a pretty strong supporter of the Affordable Care Act. I thought it was best for everyday people. That Which was, was actually a Heritage Foundation idea. And policy in seventy nine, right? Yeah. Exactly. Individual yeah. mandate. Yep. It's still not quite acknowledged as one, <laughs> but it was. Right. Yeah. And so there's this idea of direct primary care. And it's a really a conservative idea. It's it's kind of was born out of a conservative uh, think tanks. And I think, I don't think it can work on a on a national scale for everyone. But I think that there are communities, there are ways in which we can integrate aspects of that plan into a broader plan that is either public option or individual mandate. What is what does it mean to be so direct primary care means that you work directly with with one doctor oh, okay. who can address your needs in a way that you can't when you rely on insurance and rely on certain coverage packages and plans. Huh. But it's very, the specifics and the details of it, it would be very difficult to work out on a national yeah. scale. It's almost like uh, school choice in a sense, which I've also modified on. Yeah. I used to think that school choice disadvantaged teachers, but I think the primary concern is students. I think teachers are very important. Yeah, I mean, you're a product of school choice, more or less. You chose to go to a different school. So So those are two issues in particular. Okay. Essentially, my my stance now in healthcare is that I think it's very complicated. I don't think, I think we can do better than what Obamacare was. And I think that there are some, it's not necessarily what Mitch McConnell is putting Mm -hmm. forward. But I think that if we pay attention to some of what uh, AEI has to say about healthcare and some of what the Heritage Foundation has to say about healthcare, we can have something, a more comprehensive plan that better reflects the resources that we have yeah. and, and how well our economy is doing now. Okay. So that's the issue-based concern um, is that we can integrate direct primary care And you, you, care say, you say in the book you want to be president one day. So I do say that. You, I do you say, have a very I do, I've thought particular interest in I policy. Do, exactly. Yeah. The more broader human relations concern is that um, – and there's some sense – you know, I, I had some understanding of this, but it's become ever more clear in doing this work. One thing you want to avoid assuming is not just that you know someone's position, but that you understand their intentions and their motivations. It can be so easy. I'm giving a book talk somewhere and someone stands up and, you know, my mom taught me to pay attention to body language and all these things. And I see someone, it looks like they're standing up to aggress upon me in some way and say something and, and I don't necessarily know just because I can see that what their motivations are, what their intentions are, what they hope to achieve, why they felt the need to do that. And I think that there's a there's a lost opportunity when it comes to just learning more about really what it means to be a human being when we walk away from a difficult or unpleasant experience and assume that we know why someone did what they did. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Zach, thanks for coming to Fires DC office and talking to me about your book today. Always a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. That was Zach Wood, author of the new memoir, Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, you enjoy this podcast, please consider, as always, leaving us a review on iTunes. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening.